Please pray with me. May the good news come to us, O God, not just in words, but in the transforming power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Back in the 1990s, when Michael Jordan was playing in the NBA, it was announced that he and his Chicago Bulls would play an exhibition game at Jordan's College Arena, the Dean Dome at the University of North Carolina. A local man who was a big fan of Jordan really wanted tickets for himself and his family. So he telephoned the ticket office, as this was before you could easily order tickets on the internet, and he asked for the best seats that were still available. He didn't have a seat map, but the person who took his order assured him he was getting great seats. And he figured at $28 a piece, it couldn't be too bad. Well, when he and his family got to the arena for the game and found their seats, as he tells it, they were so far from the court, they were in a different zip code. But it often matters where we sit. Whether it's a game, a concert, a flight, a classroom, an office, it's not enough just to be there. You'd like to have the best seat you can find. So it was at the dinner that Jesus attended in our gospel lesson. He noticed that his fellow guests were angling to stake out the best seats. And in that culture where honor and shame were so important, the seats closest to the host, that is the head table, were thought to be the most honored ones. So it was natural that people would want to sit there. The trouble was that VIPs often came late. So even if you snagged one of the better seats, it was still possible that the host might come up to you and say, uh, sorry, I need to give your seat to Mr. Big. And thus you would slink back to one of the seats in the back. And so Jesus offers a piece of advice. When you arrive at the party, take the lowest seat the farthest from the action. That way, not only are you assured of not getting bumped, but the host might offer you an upgrade. Sounds practical enough. And yet the fact that Jesus, or the fact that this advice was introduced as a parable suggests that Jesus was not just talking about seating arrangements. Bible scholar N.T. Wright suggests that Jesus was warning against inflating your own importance, not just at a party, but in the eyes of God. The Pharisees, who were Jesus' fellow guests, were very careful to obey all the rules. They followed standards of purity, which meant that they did not associate with sinners and others they considered undesirable. They thought they were VIPs in God's sight, more deserving than those people. And Jesus urges them to humble themselves, to take a cheap seat, so to speak. Humbling yourself does not mean dissing yourself. It's good to rejoice in who you are, in the wonder of God's work in making you.
But if you assume that you deserve a first class seat, and those other people don't even deserve to be on the flight, then you're obscuring God's intention to be generous to all. For Jesus made a career of inviting people into God's kingdom without regard to who deserves what. To make sure people got that point, Jesus offers a second suggestion. When you give a party, don't just invite your usual circle, your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors, but reach out to the poor, the differently abled, the outcasts, people who aren't likely to pay you back, and you'll be rewarded in the next life. Say what? That idea must have sounded ridiculous, even shocking to those who heard him. In that honor-shame culture, it was just not the way things worked. It was assumed that you gave a party, people and the ones who were invited owed you one, and they would repay you by inviting you. Why waste a good party on people that couldn't return the favor? And Jesus' proposal sounds foolish in our economy, which is based on who earns what and who owns whom. But it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God. Because it's the way God treats us. God invites us in and gives to us and blesses us regardless of our assets or merits or status or where we come from or how we identify. Jesus encourages us to trust God, trust God's provision and pay it forward. In other words, as David Mose puts it, we are called to stop counting and start giving and blessing. So much of our life is taken up in counting. We're concerned about whether we have enough in the bank, whether we make as much as somebody else, whether we have enough time for everything that's demanded of us. And sure, whether we get enough likes on social media, it's always about whether we'll have enough. But what if there really is enough to go around? And our calling is not to count and worry and compete, but rather to share the abundance of God's gifts and seek justice for everyone. According to Jesus, that's the way things are in the kingdom of God. There really is enough. What if our confidence in God enabled us to stop counting and simply be kind to everyone? To jump at opportunities to give. To invite into our lives those who seem isolated. What would it mean in practice to take up Jesus' challenge, give a party, and invite the marginalized people? Folks who wouldn't be able to return the favor. Here's an example that may convey some of the shock 
the Pharisees must have felt when Jesus proposed inviting those people. It comes from Tony Campolo, a sociologist and pastor who has written quite a bit about putting the gospel into practice. Tony Campolo travels from his home in Philadelphia to Hawaii. And because of the six hour time difference, after his first night's sleep, he woke up at what, have been, what would have been eight o'clock at home, but it was two o'clock locally. He was wide awake and hungry, and the hotel food service was closed. So he decided to just start walking around the streets of Honolulu and try to find a place where he could get something to eat. The only place he found open was an old diner of the kind that inspired the term greasy spoon. So he went in and sat down to the, the counter and ordered coffee and a sandwich. No sooner had he started eating that the door swung open and eight women came in. Their boisterous manner and provocative dress signaled that they were prostitutes. And they took their seats on, at the counter on each side of Tony. This was not a, a real comfortable arrangement, arrangement for him. And he figured he would uh, hurriedly finish his meal, pay his check, and, and take off. When suddenly the woman sitting next to him spoke up, speaking to the woman on the other side of Tony. You know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 39. And the other woman replied to her, well, what are you telling me for? What do you want? Am I supposed to bake a cake and sing happy birthday? And the first woman said, why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, I'm not asking anything from you. Why should you give me a party? Nobody ever has. And Tony had an idea. And instead of leaving, he waited until the women had finished their break and gone out. And then he said to the man behind the counter, whose name turned out to be Harry, those women come in here often? And Harry said, uh, yeah, uh, every night, 3 a.m., you can set your watch. Well, Tony said, the one sitting on this side of me said that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we give her a party tomorrow right here? And at first, Harry didn't know what to make of that, but slowly his face lit up. And he said, hey, yeah, I like it. Her name's Agnes. She's nice. My wife works here, too, and she could bake a cake. And so the next night, uh, as agreed, uh, Tony came, up, came in to, to the diner a few minutes before 3 o'clock with a handful of balloons and a sign saying, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And right on time, the women came in, except there were a lot more of them. It seemed that every hooker in Honolulu was trying to crowd into that diner. 
And then Agnes came in with a friend, and immediately everybody spontaneously broke into singing happy birthday. And Tony held up the sign that said happy birthday, Agnes. And, and Agnes was blown away. And she, her, her knees buckled and, and her, she started to tear up. And her friend had to uh, support her, so they, they sat down. And as soon as uh, Agnes had recovered a little bit, uh, Harry brought out the cake and said, uh, well, let, let's see, would, would you like to cut the cake, Agnes? And she looked at it for a minute and said uh, softly, Harry, uh, do you think before we cut it, I could take it and show my mom? We, we just live a few, few doors down, and this is really special. And so Agnes walked out with the cake, uh, holding it as if it were a sacred object. And then everybody was, was quiet and didn't, didn't know what to say. And on the spur of the moment, T Tony said, well, suppose we have a little prayer. And so, so Tony led a brief prayer, uh, thanking God for Agnes and for the occasion and the joy and asking God's blessing on everyone there. And after that, the women had conversation for a few minutes, and then they left. And it was just Tony and Harry. And uh, Harry said to Tony, uh, you're a preacher? Yeah. Well, what, what kind of church you, you with? And Tony's answer just came out automatically. We're the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3 o'clock in the morning. And Harry was taken aback, but, but then he, he said, uh, no, you're, you're, you're messing with me. There's no church like that. You know, if there was a church like that, even I would join. I would totally go to a church like that. Wouldn't you?